Are you ready for a travel adventure? How about an exciting trip to Venice or an exhilarating experience in Bangkok? Maybe you were more about a culinary adventure in Barcelona or just a relaxing day cruising the canals of Amsterdam. Join the Professor Travel as he invites you on an epic excursion, one that has you traveling the globe with him. Come and experience a world of culture, a world of history and architecture, a world of food and experiences to broaden your mind and save you time and money as you travel. Learn more, discuss more, travel more, and enjoy life more. And now your host, The Professor Travel. Greetings, students, and welcome to this episode of The Professor Travel. I am your host, The Professor Travel, coming to you live from Orange County, California. This is the website, blog, and podcast that you go to in order to learn more about different destinations. This is where you go in order to discuss those destinations as a community. You come here in order to hopefully travel more and learn about different spots, but then you also enjoy life more as well. Now, you can always reach me on my website, which is www.theprofessortravel.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Facebook at The Professor Travel. On Instagram, it's a little bit different. It's the underscore professor underscore travel. On Twitter, you can find me at The Professor TR1. And then if you're a blogger, you can also find me on blogspot.com at theprofessortravel.blogspot.com. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing you to our visiting professor, uh, Joe Cook-Giles. Say hi to the students, Joe. Hi, students. Glad to meet you all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Joe, you recently went on a trip to London. Is that correct? I did indeed. Awesome. Well, we're going to find out a little bit more about that, but why don't you introduce yourself to the students? Maybe we can find out a little bit about your education and maybe some places that you've traveled before. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's see. Um, Education-wise, I don't really uh, tie in at all with my travel stuff because I'm um, actually a computer science geek. So I got my... Uh, bachelor's in that and i've been working in orange county government for oh gosh past almost 20 years now but in addition to that um i am a complete history nerd there's really no other way to put it um i love history i love every aspect of it um and i think one of the things that um in really and only in my adult life that i learned is history when you just read about it is boring Boring, 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 because you're just reading about dry things that are done and over with and names and places and dates. But um, when you're part of a living history group of pretty much any kind, you're learning on the job. That's the best way to put it, is you are experiencing things. You know, you're, you're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're touching it, you're tasting it. And that's what really brings history to life and makes us, you know, all scratch our heads at some point and go, oh, that's why that was done. You know, that's why people did things like this. So... Yeah. I was going to say, the picture that you have here is amazing. Okay, this is part of a group that I used to belong to as well. Do you mind telling the students a little bit about this? Absolutely. Um, I am a member of the uh, Society of Creative Anachronism, which is kind of a, a technical long word for really one of the oldest, if not the oldest, um, reenactment groups on the planet. started in 1966 and has been going strong ever since. And it's it's a place for anybody that's interested in history of any any uh, capacity that's pre-1600. And uh, I've, uh, I've really, I've, well, I dove in head first and have been doing a ton of things and really haven't stopped over the past 30 years. So this picture, actually, it's kind of funny. This was um, a somewhat candid picture. This, we had one of our larger reenactment events that's uh, near Mississippi. And there were some wonderful people there that 
their specialty is birds of prey. They're licensed to have birds of prey. And there were hawks and eagles and owls and, you know, things that all kinds of really intense animals that people could go and visit and have the chance to hold. You know, they're not pets. They're, they're animals. And um, you, you can't really see it in this picture. I was terrified holding this thing because here's this hawk that could rip my face off easily and there's nothing I could do about it. So I'm, I'm just kind of holding him as far away from my face as I can um, while trying to act calm. And a friend of mine just happened to snap the picture. So, it, you know, I'm hiding the fear pretty well there, but uh, it was it was an intense moment. It's a great picture, and you look amazing in this picture. Thank so, you. And uh, just, I, I'm so happy to have have this here. It's just great um, for my viewers. Uh, we were gonna we were gonna go with a different picture, and then I saw this one. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to have this one. <laughs> so it's just such a great picture. So thank you for sharing that with myself and my students. I really appreciate my it. My pleasure. Now let's talk about the trip. Now um, you decided to go to London. How long in advance did you start to plan for this trip? Yeah, probably about four years ago. Um, just because I'm a bit of a control freak. Well, four years ago in that you got to save money. You know, none of us are made of money. So it was a matter of stash away, just get in the habit, always stash away. Don't even think about it. You know, just count it eventually when you think you have enough. And hopefully there'll be enough for the trip and for some souvenirs. So really, I, I would say about three, four years ago or so is when I, I started getting ready for this trip. And uh I had been previously only once, and I think from the moment we got back to the States, I, I was like, okay, the next time we go. So I started saving, like, within the next month. So you were very prepared. You'd already been there once, so you were like, we are absolutely going back. This is just oh, – yeah. it's, it's, it's in the cards. I have to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just so for my listeners to know, uh, were there any type of visa requirements, travel medications, anything for traveling overseas that you had to take part in? Not really. I mean, you need you have to make sure that your passport is updated. And one thing that you absolutely need to remember is government does not work quickly. So if your passport is coming up on expiration or you, you're thinking, oh, I'll deal with it later, don't forget it's going to take some time and you have no control over that and you have to have it. So make sure you're doing it not, you know, weeks in advance, not a month, months in advance. Make sure you've got that part done. Yes. And thank you for bringing it up. I am like you, I am a major control freak. And the notion of having to even send in something like your birth certificate or send in something like your expiring passport, mm -hmm. letting that leave your hands yeah. is a scary, scary moment. It's very like, scary. Mm, I don't know if it's, a, I don't know if it's going to get lost. I don't know if it's going to come back. I, like it was, it was traumatic for me the first time I had to send it back in order to get it renewed. Exactly. But the beauty of it is when you get it back, uh, you're going to get a new one. And then on top of that, you get the expired one as well. So you still have all those memories mm -hmm. that goes along with it. So it's kind of cool as far as that piece goes. And you get to look at it and say, wow, I've really aged. <laughs> well, now that you bring that up, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> no. Um, but okay. So let's talk about the vacation a little bit. So in the pre-packing process, so now you have a date, you know when you're going to go. What are some things that you're pre-packing for this? And how long are you going to be there for? Well, we went for about two weeks, my husband and I, and uh, the, the biggest thing really for me in, in mentally preparing is the last time we were there, um, it, the weather was kind of, um, it, it was similar because we were traveling there um, in the spring, so it kind of felt summerish. This time we were going in November. Now, living in Southern California, temperatures are really very different, and they have this stuff called, you know, rain that comes down from the sky, yeah, and it's really I've, weird. I've heard so, about that one time. 
Exactly. So this was a matter of, oh, I'm going to need coats. Oh, I'm going to need sweaters. Oh, I'm going to need a scarf, um, umbrellas, you know, things like that that we just really don't think about in, in Southern California very much. But I it, even looking at the stuff as it's getting ready to go in the suitcase, I'm like, am I really going to wear this stuff? I wore it every single day. Every day we were there, we looked out weather-wise. We barely hit any rain, but every single day was sweater, jacket, scarf weather. So every day, lots and lots of layering over there. It sounds mm-hmm. like. so, layers are your friends. I, yes, I actually, that was my, that was the first trip I took to New York city. I was walking through the streets and it was winter and I was like, I had a coat on. I thought I'd be fine. You don't realize you need earmuffs. You need a head, you need a, a, a cap. You need a scarf. You need gloves. I'm mm-hmm. walking down the street and I am literally going numb from how cold it's getting because yeah. I'm not prepared for this. I haven't needed a scarf since I was about five years old growing up in New England. And I kind of completely forgot they existed. Yeah. But I, I had one that a friend of mine gifted me, oh, I don't know, five, six years ago. And I'm like, great. It's lovely. I'm never going to use it. Well, I used it and I used yeah. it every day. But these things are really nice. <laughs> It's really important, actually. It's, it's very important. Yeah. So good for you. Um, now you left out at LAX, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And um, from our from our previous conversation, you decided to take a car up there, correct? Mm-hmm. That's oh, perfect. perfect. Excellent. Very correct. And they and they in turn you scheduled the pickup as well. So you didn't do like an Uber or uh, a rental car or anything. Yeah. Like okay. And you didn't. I mean, you certainly could. This was just a little bit, you know, more reliable because we had scheduled it way in advance. We told them we need to be picked up at exactly this time dropped off at exactly this time. So, you know, again, control freaks. So I, I really pushed for that. You know what? And, and, and praise you for being a control freak because I am okay. one too. And so I see from your perspective and when my husband, for example, when he's deciding, Oh, you know, it's okay. It's five minutes until the movie starts. Let's go do something else. And then we'll come in after the previews. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> let's not. So yeah, I'm on the same wavelength as you. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about the flight. So which airline did you decide to go on? Uh, this time we actually ended up on Air New Zealand. And oh. I was scratching my head with that going, but we're going, we're, we're Americans and we're going, hey, okay. But we ended up on Air New Zealand and listened to some wonderful accents. I love that flight. I actually did take, I think it was either Air New Zealand one or two in order to get over to London a couple of years ago. That was the exact flight that I took over. And for those of you who don't know, Air New Zealand is in part subsidized by the New Zealand wine industry. So it's flowing the whole time there. It doesn't matter whether you're a coach, doesn't matter whether you're first class, you get free wine at any time, at any point during the flight. All you have to do is ring the little button on your screen and let them know that you want to see it. I assume really? I don't remember that. <laughs> I, I don't remember literally it. i don't remember it <laughs> <laughs> but they had free snacks they had free I I, oh, yeah. I I did the exact same flight i loved it the the i i i, I will say the one thing about the air new zealand flight crew i didn't really like the the uniforms <laughs> they were very frumpy looking but apart from that it was a yeah, really lovely flight yeah, that's why well, and a nice international crew. I mean, there were there were um, Italians, there were uh, Spaniards, there were obviously New Zealanders, there were Englishmen. There, there was just pretty much a little bit of everything, and some accents I couldn't pick up at all. <laughs> that's totally understandable, and it's okay. And how far? How long was the flight for you? It was about 10, 11 hours, something like that. Uh, it was about ten hours, and uh, I'm was really surprised. It kind of went by in a flash. 
So I was fully expecting, you know, we're going to be here forever. And it's to compare it to other things. If I'm flying to the East Coast, for instance, inevitably, you've got one stop, you've got two stops, and you may leave California at such and such a point, and it's going to take you to get to pretty much anywhere on the East Coast, it's going to take about the same amount of time. For some reason, it takes like nine or 10 hours. Yeah. Um, you know, you land in Dallas and you're there for an hour or two. So, okay, go to a restaurant, hang out, kill time. But, you know, having a direct flight, it's like, oh, we're here already. Yeah. So it, w- it was really very nice. Did you guys take an evening flight or did you take a, a daytime flight? Hmm. Um, we took a daytime flight um, going over and... Uh, because of the way the time difference was, of course, we're exhausted. We've been up almost uh, 24 hours by the time we've gotten there. And uh, lo and behold, by the time we get there, it's nine in the morning or something like that. So, you know, you, you want to go to bed, but you're like, I can't. It's the first day. So you know, we just really took it easy as much as we could. And we're like, OK, let's let's get to the hotel. We're not going to travel very far because we're slap happy. But we're going to go have some tea. We're going to have lunch. We're, we're going to try to acclimate as much as we can stay up so that when it's nighttime here, we're going to crash and crash really hard. Did you guys get to experience high tea while you were out there? When did we not? <laughs> we, we did it like three times while we were there. Um, what, we're, you remember any of the places that you had high tea that were really exceptional? <laughs> oh, there was one. Um, when let's see, we, we traveled around to a number of different cities, but when we ended up um, in London proper, there was one place we, we just had some time to kill in the afternoon and he was getting hangry and we were both getting chilly and it's like, okay, well, we've been walking for at least an hour. It's tea time. So um, the, the cool part I loved uh, that I was able to pull up my phone and just look up tea. Boom. You know, all these places pop up. So I went to, um, directed us to uh, one that just happened to be very, very close by. Never heard of it. It was called TWG. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) It was intimidating because we walked into the first floor and I thought, Oh, it's just a tea store. It's not a place to get tea because there were just all these canisters and canisters of tea all over the place and very, very fine frou-frou shop. And then I noticed there were stairs going upstairs where they were doing tea. Okay, fine. We'll go up there. It was a, an extremely formal-looking dining room, and it looked like a museum of tea because there were just glass cases everywhere with all these antique tea kettles and teapots and tea accessories from 1700s onwards. And uh, just it, it was kind of scary. And we sat down. We were the only ones there for whatever reason. It was, you know, some day in the middle of the, of the week, so probably everyone was at work. And the waiter came over with the, the tea menu. I'm not used to tea menus. And um, as I opened it up, my, my, I asked my hangry husband what we, he was going to have. And he just kind of scowls and he says he's going to order Earl Grey. And I went, no, 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 no. What kind of Earl Grey? There's an Earl <laughs> Grey section. There were literally 17 different kinds of Earl Grey. So by the time the waiter came over, I just told him, I'm scared. I'm just going to tell you, you flavors. I'm an ignorant American. Help me out here. And he just kind of, chuckled and nodded his head and and, uh, and he said he, they get that a lot and he <laughs> beat through it and ordered for me and made an excellent choice and uh we we had a great experience we had tea multiple times when we were in london um i would say probably the best one we had was at this hotel 
that we went to that I guess Angelina Jolie had stayed at recently. Oh, well. So yeah, it was it was a really posh hotel, and I'm here like not really dressed to my finest, and um, but they had these like fully five foot standing like tea you know. Uh, trolleys and you know with the, <laughs> with the different layers on each of them and mm-hmm. like you said they have a tea menu uh also for the I, I should take a step back for my students who are listening um here in america we're so used to having three square meals a day and just that's it over there uh, across the pond they typically have four they have your breakfast and your lunch typically then you, around four o'clock every day they have tea which is kind of like an interim meal it's a it's very proper and there's a lot of different things that they do with it typically. But again, it's just for the lack of a better term, it's kind of like a midway point between lunch and dinner. And then a lot of people over there do typically have dinner very late. Uh, They will usually have late uh, dinner sometime around eight or 9 PM, which most people in the States usually aren't accustomed to. We usually eat around five or six o'clock, but in lieu of the tea time, that's what it is. So let's now let's fast forward again, back to where we were at. So Mm -hmm. Where where were your accommodations? Where did you guys end up staying? We really hopped around quite a bit. So um, as I was mentioning, we, we spent the first day in London, and then we were traveling to Durham and York and Coventry um, and Manchester before we ended up back in London. Mm-hmm. So we, we hopped around to a couple of different um, hotels and B&Bs and such. Um, and our main accommodation in London was wonderful. We we ended up at a uh, Mr. B and B, so it was cheaper and it was you know right dead center of exactly where we wanted to be without you know all the uh, the hustle and bustle of the hotel and such. So I, I find that much cozier, and I I really like that kind of concept. It's it's cheaper and it's just nicer, and you know you don't you don't feel that crush of all these people and waiting in lines and such. Nice. Um, yeah. let's, let's go through your itinerary really quick. Let's talk about okay. you went individually, maybe each of the days that you went, and then maybe if we can just get a snippet or a sampling of maybe just one thing that you did at each of those locations. Sure. Uh, one of the first things we did, of course, uh, the, the first day we stayed in London, because the last thing we wanted to do was get off the plane after all that, and then have to hop on a train with all of our luggage and travel for X amount more time. We were dead tired. We just needed some tea. So we, we got a hotel um, uh, in, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly which area of London, but um, it, we were able to at least just get settled and go and have some lunch and just explore a little bit. And that's one of the things that I really love to encourage people to do is even if you've researched where you're going to go, just go and get lost. Um, because in a place like England, there's, there's some story or adventure or, again, for geeks like me, history in every corner. So where we were, maybe like two blocks down was uh, Temple Church, for instance. And you're like, what, what is that? And, oh, gee, it's a, an old church founded by the Knights Templar. <laughs> so I'm geeking out over that. And um, the law courts are across from that. And then passing by there, um, we, we found a uh, very elaborate Twinings tea shop that, gee, had been there since the early 1700s. And it's the oldest tea shop in all of London. So. Uh, as an American where, you know, Oh, it's old. It's 50 years old. It's like seeing all this stuff is so cool. So that, that was on our first day. Let me, let me stop you there for just one second. If you don't mind um, to my, to my listeners and to my viewers. Yeah. I want to, I want to express, you really haven't, you really haven't experienced history until 
you've gone out of the country. Like, for example, mm-hmm. saying, I grew up here in Southern California. So the oldest buildings that I was aware of were like 50, maybe 100 years old at the oldest here in Southern California. Then, like you, you grew up on the East Coast. So buildings over there are maybe a couple of hundred years old. You'll see a couple that are, you know go back that far. And that seemed really old by standard. And then all of a sudden, when you're going back to many of these countries in Europe and you're seeing the marble staircases warped because so many people have walked on them throughout the hundreds and hundreds of years, it's it's really quite an amazing moment to just- It's very surreal. It is. It, that's a good way to put it. It is very surreal. And it's, it's really hard sometimes to place things because- um, we're used to, I liken it in historical terms to Tut's tomb. You know, where that was closed and that was it. Nothing else happened for the thousands of years it was closed until, you know, Howard Carter found it. Well, with a lot of these things that are continuously going through time, they've gone through renovations. So you could have what you're, you're looking at what you think is a Victorian building and well, it's Victorian that's built on top of Georgian, which is built on top of Tudor, which is built on medieval, which is built on, and it goes back and back and back. So it could be that once all this plaster comes off this wall, you've got periods and periods of different brickwork that could be dating all the way back to the Roman occupation of England. And it's just built on top of each other because, you know, why knock down a perfectly good wall? It's just incorporated into this brand new office building. Yep. So that's one of the things that really blew my mind is, you know, when you'd see literally the um, just the barely existing ruins of a church that just go into a completely modern office building. You know what? I want to I want to I want to add to this conversation really quick. I recently did a trip. We, my, my husband and I recently took a cruise uh, from Rome to Venice and we went all the way around the coast. Yeah. And um, when we were in Venice, we took a, we took a, um, we took a day trip to Verona, uh, which is not too terribly far from Venice. Beautiful city, by the way, if anybody yeah. has the opportunity to go there. I, I had been there before about 10 years ago with my best friend and, and it was great. It was lovely. And I wanted to take my husband to see it for the first time. We decided to go on a tour there and, the tour actually took us into a, took us into the basement of a Burberry department store. I'm like, why are we going into <laughs> why are we going into the basement of a department store? Turns out that they had recently done an actual, or I'm sorry, it wasn't Burberry. It was a Benetton's. I apologize. Um, and they they were in the process of excavating the basement in order to do some additional stuff, and they found an ancient Roman like um, a, a state a, or a, a house that had been right in the basement. So archaeologists mm-hmm. are, coming into the, are coming into the basement of this um, Benetton and there's a specific area of the basement. They're selling, they're selling jeans and t-shirts and sweaters on either side of this, but then they have an archaeological site right in the center and yep. it's, it's preserved and archaeologists go there every single week to do a little bit of additional work on it but it's mm-hmm. walled off from the public to touch it. It's just Isn't it great to be able to see it's, it is, it's like you're right smack in the middle of history. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to mm-hmm. think off track for a second, but I wanted to add to that. So again, thank you so much for mentioning that. So you were in, so let, so that was your day mm-hmm. in London. Let's continue mm-hmm. after that. Okay. Um, after, after our first day in London, where we just kind of got, acclimated time-wise, which I, I have to emphasize, especially the older you get, the more time it takes you to acclimate time-wise. The excitement only 
carries so much adrenaline. Um, we ended up uh, hopping on a train and heading up to Manchester. And uh, that was kind of like the, the central point of the north where we wanted to be because we wanted to be over there, over there, over there. And Manchester was kind of at the center. So we made that sort of our home base and uh, ended up in a uh, hotel right on Canal Street, which served us well because that's the gay district of Manchester. So we had a fantastic time just bar hopping. And I learned a very important lesson. I do not understand the accents of Manchester drag queens. <laughs> not a chance. Totally. <laughs> so, although I, I did get better at it the drinker I got, but I digress. Um, Man- Manchester was just so beautiful. Um, we we did we did a lot of walking in Europe, which of course you do anyway. You know, far more than we do here. Mm-hmm. And at one point, we decided let's go check out the Manchester Cathedral, and that was one of those opportunities we had to just get lost. So we found ourselves in the middle of the downtown Manchester area where they'd set up this gorgeous, very, very old-looking European Christmas market. Mm. And just, you know, selling all kinds of all kinds of gifts, really beautiful quality stuff, souvenirs and everything. And again, this is uh, early November. I'm thinking, this is really beautiful, but why are they doing Christmas already? It's like they skipped over Thanksgiving. Oh, uh, uh, they don't know. have that here. They can do that. <laughs> so... Fine, and uh, I'm checking out different things, and right off the bat, I found things that I was interested in. Um, again, really, really being a history geek and finding reproduction this, reproduction that, just all over the place, and super cheap prices compared to what we'd find them here for. So I was loving every bit of that. Can I interrupt you for one more moment? Sure. Um, sure. So <laughs> Thank you. Um, with all of the stability issues with what's going on with Brexit and the economy over in, in London, um, did you, do you think the prices were significantly affected this time more so than the last time you were there? I mean, did it seem like the prices were huh. different? I didn't really notice a difference. Um, I think everybody there is, they're, they're not holding their breath. They're waiting for things to happen. No one's really sure what's going to happen. Um, and it was it was almost that subject I didn't want to address with anyone because it, it weighs heavily on their minds. And um, the, the, the trade-off that we had is, hi, I'm an American, don't blame me for Trump. And they would say, hi, I'm English, don't blame me for Brexit. Okay. <laughs> Fair trade. Makes sense. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So here we are in Manchester then. And by the way, thank you very much for answering that. So here we are mm-hmm. in Manchester. Where do we, what do we do here now? What, apart from the drag shows and apart from the cathedral, yeah. what else do we got? That was really the, the best kind of like getting used to um, just being in England place for me because we, we didn't have um, heavy destinations at that point. We were still trying to get used to where we were. Um, but it was nice in terms of just kind of exploring the locale, get used to the weather, get used to the times, get used to the temperatures, get used to the, the, the way the trains worked and things like that. Um, all of which took almost no time. I mean, even though I'm not used to any kind of public transportation here in Southern California, mm-hmm. you just really fell into it um, very, very easily. And, and I think the the whole the train system, um, certainly the, the London Underground, I don't think they could get any easier. They really make it very foolproof. And even for someone like me who is a nervous traveler, if I don't know and understand every single piece, it, it was fairly foolproof. Okay. By the way, mm-hmm. I'm a I am a fan of British food. 
Um, I know some people, I, I hear people knocking it for whatever reason. I don't know why. Uh, what was your opinion of the British cuisine? I loved it. Um, but basically we were either doing um, ethnic restaurants, which for the most part, you're not going to find just like here. You don't find typically American food. You're, if you're going out, you're going to have French, you're going to have Italian, whatever. It's the same thing there. Um, with the exception of if you go to pubs and I love pub grub, give me a game pie anytime. And I have yet to find a pub that served a bad game pie. They were all fantastic. Um, to the point where I'm trying to replicate them here a lot. Mm. So I, I, I loved every single bit of the food that we had there. I avoided all the chains and everything. Um, and you know, you can certainly do that. I mean, there's, there's chain restaurants left and right that you'd recommend recognize here from the states if you're that specific an eater but i figure you know when when in rome you know well when in london do as the londoners <laughs> when so, in former rome when in londinium <laughs> so i i absolutely love the food there and it, what's funny they've always say the best indian food in the world is in england it's true it's totally <laughs> true have you been to india no but i know several people that have and they agree so uh. You know, it's it's sort of just a big joke um, ever since, you know, um, England took over India and, you know, that whole thing with Victoria. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that little that little thing happened. Yeah, that little thing. Yeah. But I, I absolutely loved it. No oh. problem with the food at all. all. Nice. Excellent. All right. So where do we go after Manchester? Um, after Manchester was the first part of the real destination um, bit, and that's when we went to Durham. And for me, um, Durham was really very, um, Durham was one of my bucket list items. Um, in college, one of the things I, I did as part of my um, English minor is I really studied a lot of Anglo-Saxon and studied the language, studied the culture. And Durham is one of those destinations because it's um, the burial place of uh, St. Cuthbert and the Venerable Bede from whom we know all of um, the early English history. So going there was an absolute must, not only for the architecture um, and visiting their graves, but there are also grave goods that were buried with uh, St. Cuthbert, which are some of the earliest embroideries that we have from England. And I had to see those. I've, I've studied them, but I needed to see them with my own eyes and see just how big they are, how much they shine, things like that. So when we got up to that church, I was, you know, I, I will admit, you know, the, the tears coming down my face as we're like walking up to um, Durham Cathedral. And it was just one of those, one of the most somber moments walking into it because it's massive and it's so old and, you know, you could feel the You can feel the history. It's like the walls were breathing still. And, you know, again, it's living history because the, there's been some form of church there. Oh gosh, since 600 something. And, you know, they, there would be one, they'd knock it down, they'd, they'd refine it, they'd renovate it. So this part's this old, this part's this old, this part's this old, all the way through Victorian. Mm-hmm. So you've got just so much history all in one place. And you've got the graves, you've got um, different chapels dedicated to different things. You've got the treasury, you've got people that are attending mass or lighting candles and doing prayers, other people just being geeks like me. Um, I, I ended up kneeling in front of uh, uh, the Venerable Bede's tomb and started reciting Cadman's hymn in Anglo-Saxon just because wow. I just had to. It was just one of those things I had to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I can say, you know, check. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm having my moment, and he's he's bearing with me for it. So we had we'd gone through the entire 
cathedral and still had some time to kill. And what I didn't realize is um, pretty much in the same complex, there is Durham Castle, which I had not even heard of. And it's right there. So it's like, well, we're here. We're never probably not going to be here again anytime soon. So let's go and get a tour. So we did. And uh, that, that was that was another one of my like, oh, my God, moments, because this uh, castle was left over from the Norman Conquest. So you're thinking, OK, ancient castle and they've refurbed the first floor into how it looked during the Tudor period. Cool. OK, I want to go check that out. But most of the castle's off limits because it's currently a dormitory for the university students. Like, they get to live in a castle while going wow. to school. Those <laughs> brats, I think in the prison cell that was my dorm when I went to college, I didn't get to live in a castle. <laughs> and then one of the funny parts is, while well, we were getting our tour in the courtyard and a group of the students comes out. I'm looking at the students and going, didn't I just see that one in Great British Baking Show last <laughs> week? Sure enough, it was. Wasn't that seriously? So that, that cracked me up. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Awesome. So I, I was like, okay, I don't want to be too much of a geeky American fanboy here. But can I have um, an autograph? <laughs> I, I wanted to, but, you know, they were going off and my tour was going. I'm like, later. So I'll start Facebook. Um, so we, we did that tour. We really enjoyed it. And it was, it was so beautiful. And of course my, my husband's into everything Elizabethan. So having, having something that was restored to its tutor, um, tutor into Jacobian times was really impressive. Excellent. And that left us just enough time to get back to the train. You know, the sun's about set. And, you know, right when we left, I looked over my shoulder when we we're crossing the bridge and I saw that magnificent cathedral and just, you know, the river, the cathedral, nothing modern. It was just this postcard moment. And I'm like, you know, this view hasn't changed in over a thousand years. And I'm living it. You know, that's really pretty darn cool. That is amazing. Yeah. And you tell the story well, by the way. So thank you for sharing. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so where do we go after Durham? After Durham, uh, let's see, where did we go after Durham? After Durham, uh, we went to Coventry. And that was one of the main reasons that we went at this time of year, because there's this um, thing known as the original reenactors market. And again, as you know, living history geeks, um, it's hard to find our stuff. If you're not, you know, if you, if you're not a fine craftsman and you know how to do your own sewing and do your own metalwork and do all your, you have to one way or another, get your stuff, everything from, you know, the clothes that you wear to the pavilions you, you camp in to the furniture, to the glasses you drink at out of the pottery, all that stuff. So where do you go? You can't exactly go to Walmart and get this stuff. So um, lo and behold, we found out that there was this reenactors market and it did anything from Roman period through Regency. And it was just like, you know, you'd have this convention center full of these market stalls of people just selling, you know, all kinds of historical goods. So, um, we went to that and we were there, you know, a good half hour early standing in line in the rain and just, you know, let us in, let us in, let us in it's money. <laughs> so <laughs> we went shopping like mad. And I came out of that with, uh, oh gosh, glassware and, and beads and uh, books and, and uh, more books. And I got to meet a couple of uh, people that I've been a fanboy of for a couple of years that I've seen on various um history shows that are absolute you know world-renowned experts at their stuff and i'm like uh hi <laughs> can, I, 
can I get your uh, <laughs> so you are geeking out everywhere you go oh I was, tot- I was totally geeking out and it was so much fun and you know of course as it turns out we we would run into people that we knew there um because even though it's it's like the only market like this to my knowledge in the world it's like people descend and we're we're such a a niche group that you you're always going to run into people you know one way or another and it was fun trading stories with people like people that are in, that live in England that are you know starving students that are reenactors and they're talking about you know going from an event from one place to another and being in full chain armor and shields and things and having to get on the tube and uh, just ride that as a reenactor while everyone's being awfully polite but still giving them the look you know that was just fun <laughs> so that that's that was our destination when we were in Coventry awesome all right where do we go after Coventry after Coventry we went to London proper and that's where we got to say okay here are the things that we were going to do and uh, one of one of the things that we did in London which kind of ties into what you were saying earlier about um, the department store is um, I found out because uh, my hubby had found out about this he said hey do you want to go to the temple of uh, or to the Mithraeum and I went well, baby, what 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 the heck is that? And a Mithraeum is a temple to Mithros. Like, oh, I didn't know they had one here. I didn't. I'm not sure. I like sure. What the heck? So we went to find it, and just like you're saying, very very modern um, business skyscraper. And in the basement was this temple of Mithros, yep. and they only found it sometime in the 1950s, and it is not only like the only one in England, but it is the most intact one that's been found yet in Europe. So when they found it, they're like, hmm, the design looks like a Mithraeum. And if that's the case, we should be able to find these things here. Oh, here they are. And at the end, there should be an altar with a statue. Oh, here's the head of the statue. So they absolutely knew what it was. And they found all these artifacts, all of which were on display when you first walked in. And I'm geeking out, you know, taking lots of pictures of that and, you know, then going down even further into the basement where they, they dimmed the lights and then they, they did this very cool lighting effect that showed probably what the temple design would have looked like when it was intact. And then they brought all the lights up so you could see what's left and you're walking on glass on top of it all. That was awesome. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to get more information from you on that when we go back to England in a couple of years. So Absolutely. I, I really would like to see that. I just I, – I find – the juxtaposition of the modern with the ancient so fascinating and i just oh, yeah. i it's one of those things you can't forget because it's just so in your face it's just amazing well and that that segues nicely into one of my big missions while i'm over there is uh i had um oh and this answers some of your questions before one of the things that i prepared for or pre-prepared for is uh, I purchased a mudlarking license before I went over to uh, London. A what? Sorry, a what again? Mudlarking. Can you can you tell my students and myself a little bit more? I, about absolutely, that? I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> mudlarking. The the term comes from Victorian, and basically, um, in Victorian England, it was not uncommon. Obviously, you had a big class difference, and and the in the lower classes, the desperately poor elderly and young children would go out on the Thames at low tide, find whatever they could, you know, look for, look for money that had been lost, look for anything that might be valued that they could sell. And they were known as mudlarks. 
Well, in the modern context, um, a mudlark is kind of like an amateur archaeologist. And you have to register and you have to get a license for it. There's different types of mudlarks. And the Thames is completely off limits to everyone unless you have a mudlark license. And there's certain areas where you can go down at low tide and you can scrape and you can look for things. And it's, you really got to be, you know, like I said, a geek uh, to appreciate this kind of a thing. And, you know, you think the Thames has basically been a dumping ground for 2000 years. You know, something broke, you threw it in the Thames. That's just what was done. So you've got, you've got everything from Roman Britain to Anglo-Saxon to Norman to um, Tudor to Georgian to Jacobian, Victorian, Regency, everything. And it's all just muddled up together. So you can find, you know, a Victorian bottle next to Tudor dress pins, next to garnets, next to whatever. And it's, it's just all there. And did you happen to find anything for most people, but I'm sorry. Did you happen to find anything specific while you were there? Lots. Um, in, in this particular trip, and I've, I got to do this once before, which is why I was chomping at the bit to do this again. Um, one of the most common things that you find are clay pipes. And this is something most people don't think of. You're, you'd be like, why, are, why in the world are there all these white clay pipes all over the place? You know, broken bits, but um, basically, if you think in terms of modern industrialization versus the time period, if you were to be selling a tobacco pipe, you would sell the pipe and you'd give somebody a little pouch of tobacco. Well, in the age before the sewing machine, do you really want to hand stitch all of those little pouches? No. So what they did is they did these disposable clay pipes that were pre-packed with tobacco, and you sold that as a one-off. So the clay pipe itself was like the, the cigarette butt of anywhere from about 1590 through the Victorian age. Oh, wow. So, so you've got a kabillion of these clay pipes all, all over the place. And because they changed shape over time, you can tell exactly how old it is. So I found um, this, this time, for instance, I found um, a clay pipe mostly intact that had the, the armorial information that told me, oh, this is a George III armorial. So, you know, to let that sink in, it's like, okay, this is a late 1700s pipe that no one has touched since they smoked it. I'm the first person to find it and hold it in my hand. Wow. And, you know, to put that in perspective, it's like, okay, that's Mad King George. That's the George that this country broke away from. He was our king in the late 1700s. So some of the things that I found, um, gosh, I found um, Roman Britain uh, terracotta roof tiles, and you can identify those easily. Um, I found a couple of bits of Roman pottery. Um let's see, a ton of Staffordshire ware, which is also known as colonial ware, and it's, it was kind of like the mass-produced pottery that was made to be sent to the American colonies. So that's, that's a really pretty feathery shape, and it's cool because we find it there, but sometimes some of it washes up on the beaches in New England from shipwrecks that were coming over. Um, let's see, tons of clay pipes. I found two perfectly round, perfectly round stone shot pieces. Hmm. And because they're stone and they're not cast, that's probably 1300s to 1500s. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and you're like, you're holding this thing. It's like, it's really cool. And then all of a sudden, this might have killed someone. (laughs) (laughs) 
it just kind of puts things in perspective because for me, every one of those objects tells a story. Um, and there was one moment where there was this, I just called it a, like a mudberg. The, the thing about the Thames is it's super, super, super silty. So it's, it's like a fine layer of dust is all that mud. And sometimes it's just like a massive chunk that like fell, that, that, that collapsed. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. So at one point I'm looking at it and I see this little perfectly round um, ceramic ring on the top. And I'm like, that's either a ginger beer bottle or an inkwell. Please, please, please be whole. So I'm taking my trowel and I'm kind of scraping around it. And I pulled up an intact Victorian, um, they call it a pork pie um, inkwell. And it wasn't until I got home that I realized the cork was still in it. So the ink was still part of it or not? Well, the, not ink was gone, the cork stopper was still in place. So you're think. so I'm thinking, okay, this is exactly where it was thrown by somebody who, you know, in the days before ballpoint pens and such, who knows, could have been Dickens, could have been Oscar Wilde, could have been, you know, could have been anything, anybody, but it's just fascinating to think. This has been sitting here for at least a hundred years, just waiting for me to find it. That's amazing. Yeah. Adventure. That's so fantastic. And people find all kinds of things and the, the museums have finally started to really respect that because typically they, they are really looking for objects that are in situ. So like, you know, an Anglo-Saxon camp. Okay. We find it exactly as it was back in the time and we know, but since all this stuff is just together in the Thames and you don't know how, where it washed from, where it came from, there, there are objects that are out of their context. So for a long time, the museums weren't really interested in that. But now that they realized, hey, we can identify these things. And sometimes they're kind of better than what we've got in the museums. They, they take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. So the mudlarks have to work directly with the museums. And there's, there's a couple of rules and regulations that you have to, like if you find um, objects that, are, uh, uh, that you think might be significant that are older than 300 years, you need to check with the museums and have them look at it. Um, Cause technically everything that's down there is owned by the crown. So if you find something that might be considered treasure, um, the museum will, they have the first right of purchase, but if they don't want to purchase it, they will give you a letter of release on the behalf of the crown. Mm-hmm. In and of itself would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds amazing. So yeah. It's, it's an adventure, and that's something I love doing. It was, even though it was cold as could be, I absolutely love doing it. You know, archaeologists aren't, aren't, aren't afraid of the weather, so. No. <laughs> nor, nor, nor anthropologists, but, I mean, in the same aspect, you know, it's just a matter of how you deal with the specific of the area. So it is what it is. And I figured, I, how many times am I going to get to do this in a lifetime? It's worth getting a cold. And besides, you know, when I was done, I went directly to the Mudlark pub, had a really great pork pie and uh, had some mulled wine. And suddenly I was feeling much better. Mulled wine does wonders. You know that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No question. All right. And uh, what else did we do while we were still back in London in that area? Oh, well, definitely had to go to the British Museum again. And uh, British Museum, I love because uh, a lot of the museums there are free. Um, British Museum, you know, you just have to go through the lines and go through security, and then you are bombarded by some of the greatest treasures, if not the greatest treasures in the world. So, you know, it it depends what you're looking for. And uh, one thing I advise is if people are going to go to the British Museum and you have more than one interest in terms of culture or time period, do not try and do it in one day. Because I don't know how everyone else is. 
I can't process that. If I'm, if I'm like micro-focusing on, you know, I just want to see paintings. Mm-hmm. I can't look at other things and the paintings. I want to just look at the paintings. But when you consider the Rosetta Stones there, the Elgin marbles are there. Um, some of the greatest Elizabethan treasures are there. There's treasures from Syria. There's treasures from China. It's like, uh... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Like you were saying, it's fact, very overwhelming. In fact, I went there a few years ago and I remember seeing like a, a mummy, a mummy exhibit mm-hmm. there, which was fascinating on its own. Around the corner and in my face is the Rosetta stone. Like, yeah. And you're like, wait, this is the Rosetta Stone, the, <laughs> the Rosetta Stone. And yeah. it's right there in front of my face. And I'm like, I have to, I have to snap a picture of this. I, 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 it's, it's overwhelming to me to mm-hmm. see such an amazing piece of history, like inches from my, from my fingers. It's just yeah. incredible. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so fascinating when there's something that you've looked at and you've known about for your entire life and you're not prepared for when you turn the corner that it's going to be right there. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, it's, yeah. and to my students, when you have the ability to explore the, all these different museums that are out there, actually, I would say, I would actually go so far as to say, like with what you did, you know, cathedrals and museums both have an amazing amount of history in them, especially as mm-hmm. you go through the world. Um, I am not a particularly religious person, but I, I do explore a lot of cathedrals just coincidentally whenever we're traveling mm-hmm. because they have so much wonderful history and beauty to offer that it's really just mind boggling when you go to all these places. Yes. It's, it's fascinating just to see it at all. I mean, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with it. So I absolutely understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I just realized I, I forgot an entire section of the trip. My, my absolute favorite part is when we went to York. Oh Yes. We stayed three days in York, um, and you know how sometimes you can go someplace and you've never been there, but all of a sudden you you just you you feel it. it. You're just like I could live here. It it makes sense to me. Um, York was definitely one of those places. Um, we had uh, we we ended up at a hotel called the York Priory, which I would recommend up one side down the other. People there could not bend over backwards enough for us. And it was just outside the main part of town, but less than a mile walk. So there's no point in getting an Uber or a taxi. Hey, let's walk. So part of the part of the way there, we were able to scale the old York walls, which date back originally to the Roman um, founding of York, when it was uh, Urbinium. And, you know, you're able to walk that and, and be able to check out the city and how beautiful it is, but also realize this has been around for in one form or another for about 2000 years and it still works and it's still cool. Um, and everything in New York, just, there was so much um, from the medieval into Tudor period that I did not expect to be there. And that was something that really threw me everything from a, uh, a Tudor age guild hall to barley hall, which was um, like a house that belonged to the mayor that, kind of got forgotten. They built a bunch of things around it and it got sort of covered over with other stuff. So they were like this close to bulldozing it when they started pulling things off and going, these are really old timbers. This is a really old design. And they figured out exactly what it was, restored it back to how it was in um, the late 15th century. And now it's, it's a living trust museum and completely done up like that with people that are in persona in the right costuming and everything. And it's, it's 
right down the road from York Minster, right across from one of the best tea houses in, in York. And uh, it's just so amazing. Just walking through the merchant area of York, which was my really my favorite, just being able to walk through it because the, the merchant area um, known as the shambles mm-hmm. is pretty much exactly the way it was designed from Viking times forward. They've got very, very thin streets that are not meant for cars. They're meant for people to walk. And even though the shops now are all like bath and body works or Harry Potter shops, it's like, yeah, that's in the facade. And you look up and it's Tudor architecture. And you know that these buildings have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're just continuing to live through time. It's like, wow, it was just amazing. What a great exploration. Mm -hmm. I can talk to you for days about this stuff, but... (laughs) We have to get back to the States now. So um, yeah. Yeah, I know, but you know what the beauty of being able to do all these travels is that you can, you can start to plan for your next one as soon as you get back. So that's already all planning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, returning, did you also go through uh, New Zealand or air New Zealand as well? Yes, we did. Okay, perfect. I, I hope that everything went smoothly on the way back as much as it did on the way there. Everything went really smooth. Just, you know, obviously the, the excitement level is down and you're like, oh, we're going home and back to work <laughs> and oh, it's just depressing. But other than that, I mean, the, the flight itself is fantastic. Um, and let's see, you know, I have massive carry on compared to coming over because I did a lot of shopping and no problem with that. Everybody was really super nice. And even when we got back through LAX, I'm thinking, oh, we have to go through customs and all that. But we had, um, uh, what's the name of it? The Global Pass? Oh, Global, uh, global yeah. Free, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Quick, 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 quick. Yeah. I was stuck. It's, global Entry is one of those things I highly recommend to all my students. It, it's mm-hmm. it's about $150 for about five years, but it's, mm-hmm. it's the difference between waiting an hour to go through customs and waiting 15 minutes or less. Oh, at least an hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah, at least out of LAX. Some smaller airports, I can imagine, it's not so bad. But LAX, if you if you're traveling from anywhere in the Los Angeles or Orange County area, it's massive. And so, yeah, absolutely, like you were saying, it's just it can get kind of crazy. So, mm-hmm. so let's talk about the post vacation the post vacation uh, timelines. So, let's 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 talk to a student who's a first time person, never been to the UK before what would you say are some of the pros to be able to go on this kind of a trip? One of the, uh, you what, broke what, up there what, a little bit. Uh, yeah. What are the pros? What are the, what are the benefits of going on a trip like this? It really gives you such a different perspective um, of life, of how people live and really kind of a, how do I put it? Um, almost like an alternate perspective because you're thinking Americans, Englishmen, not really all that different. Speak the same language, obviously. Very similar, you know, history and culture since we broke off from them. But um, sort of like you were talking about with dinner and such before, it's it's more of a relaxed pace. You know, in in the States, it's a matter of rush, 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 rush. You know, you rush through dinner. You rush through this. You, you've got this errand to do, that errand to do. Over there, they walk. They take their time. They, they enjoy their tea. You know, they... They just go at a slower pace. They The days are longer, but you're not as stressed out because you're just going at your own pace. And, you know, maybe it was being on vacation or maybe it was just being around all these people that just weren't in a rush. Um, it's like if, if you go to if you go to New York, there's 
you're you're there for five minutes before you get stressed out because everyone's moving so quick. You're having people knock into you. It's not like that there. It just isn't. Everything's slower, and that's really very nice. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Now, for purposes of a first-time traveler, what are some things that they may want to be aware of? Uh, maybe some culture shock issues. Hmm. <laughs> I would say one of the funniest things, actually, is the money. You know, we're used to the American greenbacks, and they're all the same size. They're all the same color. They're, they're different colors, and they're different sizes. So you're, you're, you're sitting there going, hey, it's all funny money, and they don't have $1 bills they have one dollar coins and two dollar coins and the change all looks it, it it just looks like monopoly money so it's really easy to just spend like crazy because you think you're spending monopoly money but you're not yeah exactly and then yeah. um, what other things uh do you think my students might want to know some maybe some value adds cost savings or even best practices about going on a trip like this um, there, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of it, but there is, you can easily look it up if you're looking up any of the major tourist attractions. There, um, is kind of like a package deal you can buy into that will give you, um, either discount or sometimes free admissions to things like, um, Westminster Abbey, um, St. Paul's Cathedral, um, various museums and such. And it also, um, comes with a, a prepaid Oyster card and the Oyster oh, yeah. card is what you use. Um, to get on the tube in the underground. So, you know, anytime you're taking the subway, you have to pay. And you use that little card, and it's just like like a little prepaid ATM account that you use for travel. And it's just so much more convenient. Absolutely. So basically, it's it's a little expensive. Well, it's not really expensive. It's like 1500 bucks, something like that. But with what you're saving, if you're really going to hit all these destinations, it's going to save you money. Absolutely. Joe, I really want to thank you so much for helping with this vlog and podcast. If people, My if people wanted to know more about your destination or just a little bit about the travel that you did, how could they do that? How could they find out more about that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, um, I blogged about it a little bit, oh. uh, some of my adventures. And um, it's really just my personal experience and take on things being, you know, again, a self-professed history geek. But I love being able to share this information and, and get as much out there as possible. But there's, if you really want to research like your destinations and such, um, there's so much, there's so many YouTube videos that are really helpful in terms of travel guides and tips. And, and they tell you like the little hidden things here and there. Um, it, the information's all really out there. It's, it's made very, very easy for people that are traveling um, because they obviously want to encourage you to travel. So, you know, hey, the more information they can get out of that, the better. Absolutely. And for those of you who are not watching this but are listening instead to the podcast, you can come to Joe's blog at www.storytimewithjoe.dreamwith, that's D-R-E-A-M-W-I-D-T-H dot org. And he, it's a great blog. I had an opportunity to look at it earlier today. No, you do a great job. So thank you so much for incorporating that. Again, Joe, I want to thank you so much for being on this. For those of my students who are watching and who would like to be notified when new videos pop up, simply click the bell icon on YouTube in order to be able to get access to that. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We love to get new subscriptions. We love to be able to share our information with you. And of course, if you like this video, please give it a thumbs up. We really appreciate that. If you're listening to this on one of the podcast networks, please give it a rating. We absolutely appreciate it. And until next time, make every, every day a travel adventure.
Thank you so much, everybody. Take care and bye-bye now. The Professor Travel is a broadcast from Orange County, California. A transcript of each podcast may be requested by contacting The Professor Travel at his website, theprofessortravel.com. For opportunities to work with The Professor Travel, feel free to contact Scott at theprofessortravel.com or contact us through YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook at The Professor Travel or Twitter at TheProfessorTR1. Make every day a great day to have a travel adventure.